today on Geekdemine Powers. And I would be in art classes and they'd say, like, you know, are you considering art for a career? And I would say, no, 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 you know. And they'd say, why not? And it's like, well, I, I don't want to be a starving artist. That was always the thing. I was very well programmed with this idea of, like, if you decide you want to be a creative, you're going to struggle. Um, and I was too young to appreciate it, but I got really good advice from a, a teacher I had in high school, an art teacher I had in high school, who said, Look, if you want to be a gallery artist, if you want to wear a beret and a scarf and paint strange things, like, yeah, you might struggle. But, I mean, look around this room. Some artist had to, to design this floor tile. Some artist had to come up with this book cover. Some artist had to come up with, you know, like, art is everywhere. They always need creatives for work. If, you, if you're willing to do this sort of thing, you can find work as a creative. Dinosaurs, robots, and Mars. Oh my, you are listening to Geekdom in Pals. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and this is Geekdom in Pals. Geekdom in Pals is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their stories. Geekdom in Pals creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge geekverse quilt, and today is a great example of that. Today's guest is Gary Hodges, the indie artist and writer behind the comic Dinosaurs vs. Marsbots, a true life story. And, you know, we talk about personal stories in this podcast. I still can't get over the fact of how every single guest has a unique personal story and an interesting one at that. It should be obvious, right? Everyone is different. Everyone has a story. But every story has its surprises, and I usually don't know the stories ahead of time. So uh, it is always a amazing and a welcome surprise. And Gary certainly has unique points of view and a unique story. So do listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. What are those books behind you? Uh, the ones right here, this is a stack of uh, graphic novels, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can tell you I've read most of them. <laughs> um, but I'm, I think a lot of geek enthusiasts can appreciate this. I'm much better at buying new media than actually consuming it. So there's, there's, there's some of that is backlog. I have, I have this paradox where, you know, when I finish a book, I buy two books. <laughs> That's it a good rule. Long. Yeah. 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 I, I should institute that rule. Uh, before I buy uh, two new books, I need to read one. I think then uh, it'll start to slow the backlog. But yeah. It depends. Like uh, 30 years ago, I was, uh, I went to the UK for the first time, saw for the first time in my life bookstores that have like three, story, uh, three stories high. I oh. came out with about, I think, 20 kilos of books. Oh my and gosh. They wouldn't let me, you know, board the plane. So I, I had to um I had to find a way to set to to mail them to myself. Because I just, you know, if there's an opportunity, I'm gonna buy the books. Doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. I maybe one of my favorite things uh, that I missed so I missed so much with the rise of Amazon. I miss going to big bookstores and just getting lost in them for, you know, a couple hours, just browsing aisles and going through things and ending up with this pile of stuff and even just something as simple. And I don't know why I enjoy it so much, just browsing a big fat magazine rack. There's something about that, just looking at all these different things. And you, you don't really see that too many places anymore. It's sad. Yeah. Also, we don't leave the house anymore. Uh, well, that too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I I miss the outside so much, but I miss bookstores. Yeah. 
You can move teleport from the inside of your house to the inside of bookstores. That's the dream. The dream is to uh, somehow become independently wealthy and basically just add on an old school Borders bookstore, right? Just in your garage or something. That, that would be that would be ideal. So, so uh, in Geek the Mean Pals, we usually, I usually ask first uh, for the uh, for your origin story. What's your origin story as a geek? As a geek, um, well, let's see, I was, this isn't particularly geeky, but I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, for people unfamiliar, that's southwest of the United States. It's uh, a very deserty state. Desert, yes. Mostly. But not humid. Uh, excuse me? But not humid. It's not. Not humid. Yeah. It, that, you know, it's a cliche. We all say like it's a dry heat. I've spent time in the Midwest and the South, and it is way better here like it's much much easier to handle 115 here than 90 degrees in north carolina or oklahoma or something like that it's not even close but so i grew up here uh, my dad was a cop my mom was a medical assistant um i started drawing at a very young age my mom used to tell people i don't know if this is just proud mom mythology or if it was true but she claimed i was drawing before i could walk um i love doing it never thought i would do it as a career yeah um started writing a little bit in junior high i think that's the first time i started writing little short stories um junior high is also probably about uh where i started really sinking into geek enthusiast culture i all in the span of a few years, I started reading comic books. I got a Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> I discovered anime. I mean, it was just all that seemed to hit at once. I'm uh, for just for context. I'm 46, so this was like in the early and mid 80s when all that stuff was really coming into its own. I became a hardcore Star Wars fan. All of it, loved all of it. Voltron, <laughs> all of it. Um, it was Robotech at the time. I, I was in Tucson. Robotech, yes. Below you at the yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Robo oh, gosh. All of that. It was just, it was, it's kind of, I don't know, the glory days of, I, to me, it's the beginning of everything that everyone enjoys now. Like, that was all where it kind of started, it seems like, was in that mid-80s. But I have a theory that Guardians of the Galaxy 1 is yes. actually an 80s movie. Like, he basically wrote the A-Team and Riptide and Magnum P.I. into it, and it works. Same kind it of would humor, be, same everything. It would fit perfectly. I mean, I think when we were kids, that would probably be, if we had to imagine, like, what do you think movies will be like you know, 40 years from now, <laughs> 35 years from now? We might have pictured, yeah, Guardians of the, from the Galaxy or of the Galaxy or whatever. But... Um, or uh, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim was another like 80s uh, movie. Yeah, Pacific Rim for me is, it's basically takes all the, you know, all the movies you've seen as animation and just makes them real. That's what it is. I, I loved it so much. And I remember, I just recently was talking to some friends about King Kong versus Godzilla. And those movies, the, the new Godzilla movies, they're okay. But boy, I think put the original Pacific Rim beats all of them. It was so good, so much fun. It was so like bright, fun colors, and it had like a little bit of the drama, but it also was really kind of funny and silly, and it was great. But and the robots were real, and the monsters were real, and it just looked real. Yeah, I loved the weight of the robots. Like you really got the impression that these things were giant and it was kind of hard to get them to move. You know, you would see like, you could sense that once they like threw a punch or something, they kind of wanted to just keep going. <laughs> and they had to now really, really, really stop, do everything, just full breaks on everything. It was a neat movie, it's a lot of fun. Um, so um, I dabbled in all sorts of creative things growing up. Uh, I spent a lot of high school and college fumbling with trying to write a fantasy novel that I do intend to get back to someday. Um, but then I, you know, settled into sort of adult life and had jobs and did grown up things. 
and only in the past few years finally circled back to making creative pursuits a big part of my spare time. So what was that change? Like, let's go over both changes. Like, what was it like to give that up? Like suddenly, you know, phase yourself out of it and then yeah. you decide to come back. Uh, you know, this is, I think, another thing that will probably be familiar to a lot of creatives, but also should be a cautionary tale, tale to younger ones. Uh, giving it up, all, all through school, I had a lot of, especially art teachers and things, because again, I loved art, I loved drawing, I loved creative writing. And I would be in art classes and they'd say like, you know, are you considering art for a career? And I would say, no, 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 you know. And they'd say, why not? And it's like, well, I, I don't want to be a starving artist. That was always the thing. I was very well programmed with this idea of like, if you decide you want to be a creative, you're going to struggle. Um, and I was too young to appreciate it, but I got really good advice from a, a teacher I had in high school, an art teacher I had in high school, who said, look, if you want to be a gallery artist, if you want to wear a beret and a scarf and paint strange things like, yeah, you might struggle. But I mean, look around this room. Some artist had to, to design this floor tile. Some artist had to come up with this book cover. Some artist had to come up with, you know, like art is everywhere. They always need creatives for work. If you if you're willing to do this sort of thing, you can find work as a creative. Now, I was 16 or 17, and to me, that was the most appalling, disgusting thought I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> I was like, oh, designing floor tiles? What? Designing book covers? Duh. I want to be the beret-wearing, scarf-wearing gallery artist. So no, no, no. So that's not from me. It took me time, probably the sort of 40 years in the desert of just normal adult life in a normal bland job to realize like, you know what, actually that would be great. You know, that I, I'm ready to go back. I'm, I was wrong, I was wrong, forgive me. Um, so I, I graduated from college. My initial job was for a medical device manufacturer, um, which required a little bit of an artistic eye, but it wasn't, it wasn't an art job. From there, I moved, that job got eliminated and they liked me well enough at the company I was working at to say, is there any other part of this company like we can plug you like we don't want to lose you. What would you like to do? And I was looking around and I thought because I still had that mentality of you don't want to be an artist. I saw they had a spot in the finance department <laughs> in accounting and I thought, you know what, no matter whatever happens, I'll never have to live in my car if I can do accounts payable and receivable, you know, so I'll, I'll put me in accounting like I'll yeah, I'll, I'll learn that. Meanwhile, this was the guy who all through college, I did everything I could to not take math classes like I was, you know, because I'm basically a creative. What is it right brain kind of person? Uh, so I was an accountant basically for six years. Uh, wearing a nice button down with an in and an out box, balancing checkbooks, like doing that whole thing. And uh, I forgot who to attribute the quote to, but the famous quote of living a life of quiet desperation. I was just completely unhappy. And uh, I had an opportunity. I finally had progressed far enough in that finance career where they said, uh, you're doing great here, but to really be useful to us, we need you to go and get an accounting degree. And that somehow snapped me out of it. That somehow made me realize like, what, what, what have I, it's like, I woke up like Rumpelstiltskin and was like, what, where am, what, where am I? You want me to be an accountant for the rest of my life? And I, I just said, I, that made me blink and I cashed out my 401k and left and used that money to go back to school and learn. I was more of a traditional artist. And by this point, it had moved on to very digital. So I went back to learn how to do Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop. And I took an Adobe Flash class, which was now useless, but I did that and uh, started freelance writing and free doing freelance graphic design. I started doing logos and illustrations for people. I was doing video game reviews for Village Voice Media. I was just, I just completely threw my, I basically rebooted my whole professional life in my 
oh boy, 30s. I just decided like, oh, no, 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 no. I had gone way too far down this other path of just being a cubicle guy. And I'm not a cubicle guy. So that got me back more or less on track, but I still wasn't doing my personal projects. Um, my, and I think every creative I know has a comic idea or a novel idea or a screenplay idea, or they want to be in a band. There's something, there's something they've always kind of played with, but haven't quite followed through. And it was a few years ago that I had a health scare, turned out to be nothing, but there was a few hours where I was sitting in an emergency room waiting for some tests to come back. And I think like any creative, I have a pretty good imagination. And I'm also like any creative, maybe a little neurotic. And I downward spiraled. I was thinking about like, maybe the news is going to be bad, really, really bad. And maybe my life is going to be totally different than what I imagined. And I was flooded with these feelings of regret, life regrets, big life regrets. And I was shocked, not only by how strong they were, but what specifically they were. I never, I didn't sit and think to myself, oh, I wish I'd had kids. And I didn't sit and think to myself, like, I should have married that one girl. And I, I never thought to myself, like, oh, I should have moved, or I should have done this, or I should have traveled more, I should have seen the pyramids. Like, I didn't think any of that stuff, which I would have maybe imagined. Instead, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of I never followed through on a personal creative project. And I think of myself as a creative. And I wasted so much time not just doing it. I always imagined like there'll be this perfect time. Somehow life will present like this is the time. This is now when you're going to finish your book. This is now when you're going to do that screenplay. And I was just waiting for that and it didn't happen. And now maybe I missed that. And I couldn't believe how sad I was about that. And so once I got good news back medically, like that was it. I was, it was like, I was fired out of a cannon. I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm finishing one of these things. I had a few unfinished things. I had the novel, the half finished fantasy novel. I had a couple screenplays and I had these comic ideas and the fellow comic people I know now, we all kind of laugh about it, but I looked at those three things and thought, oh, well, comic would be the easiest. Like that's the most achievable, like I can do that fast. And then I can get that hit of like, I finished a thing. Well, in retrospect, I probably should have picked the novel. The novel would have been way easier to finish. <laughs> Comics are so hard, but I, I was like, oh, how hard could a comic be? I'd never done a comic before in my life. And that's what I've been doing ever since the past few years. I've been working on my comic series. So, so, so I, I just want before we get to the comic. To the sure. Comic series, yeah, yeah. That moment when you said, "This is the thing I want to do." What is the thing? Like, because I, I get that you, you know, you had a story, to, but is it to tell that story? Is it to be able to live off your art? Is it to be able to do art from this point? to the end of time? Is it just to finish those few things? There are lots of things there. Like what is, right. what is the thing you wanted to do? I think most primarily it's to live life as an active creative, like a productive creative. Mm -hmm. I'm different from a lot of creatives I meet and fortunate in that I have a day job. That's, it's, it's I'm an illustrator basically. Um, but it's not creatively draining, draining enough where I don't want to do my personal work after work. Like I can do both with my day job. My rent gets paid. My bills get paid. Like I don't, I don't have to burden my personal work with the need. Like a lot of creatives do of like, this needs to get a certain number of readers or a certain, it needs to achieve a certain audience or else I'm going to starve that I, th I think I'm lucky in that way, but it's also incredibly freeing creatively where I don't have to make the sad calculations. I see a lot of fellow creatives make, whereas like, is this commercial? 
I, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to sit in artist alleys and comic cons and do fan art for people. Fan art sells. Drawing Catwoman in a G-string will sell. And a lot, I know a lot of just kind of sad creatives who are doing, like they're taking commissions, like, what would you like? It's like, I want Wonder Woman, but in a bikini, you know? And so you're sitting and drawing that for this person and you hate yourself, but you're doing it because that will make you some money and you need to make money because you got to pay your rent. I'm liberated from all that. I have my day job. Uh, so, but to, to get back to your question, I... Most primarily, I want to just be able to live as creative and, and do work and finish work follow through. I think if I want to get more granular, I really enjoy expressing myself um, uh, artistically and narratively and, you know, ex expressing myself through these fictional stories. So, and there's something about and this is a there's a mystery to it. I'm sure you've thought about it too. There's something kind of attractive and interesting and I feel like could be a lifelong journey of trying to figure out this this puzzle of I'm trying to do work that's very individual and that feels right for me in the hopes that when I put it out there, other people will relate to it and there'll be some universality. And that I don't quite understand how those two mesh. This, this, this strange magic of if I tell maybe the purest, most individual, most honest story of mine, other people will respond to it, you know? And, and there's something really for lack of a better term, romantic about that. I mean, what I think is, is the key, because there are a few ways to do that, because mm -hmm. there's the way that doesn't work. Got up this morning, I brushed my teeth, uh, you know, the teacher yelled at me, this guy's terrible, uh, you know, went out, went to sleep depressed, and that's it. You know, you just <laughs> give, there's a way to give your monologue in a way that really pisses people off, and also it's boring. Yes. Uh, but the way to do it, is to to use your uh, emotions and all your thoughts. So it works in both ways. If what you want to share is your thoughts, like the original science fiction was about that, you know, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Uh, but if you share your emotions, it doesn't matter how niche your emotions are, how specific to your life they are. If you're if the emotions you share are real and told honestly in a way that also presents honesty to the other people in the situation, uh, people will connect to it. Now, everyone will connect to it. People who feel your emotion will connect to it the most. I think you're on to something. I think that could be it. I think like emotions could be like basically the notes. You know, there are only so many notes, but like, you know, if you're, if you're telling a story basically where emotions are the context, that's something where you're pulling in a lot of different people who have been in that same place and experienced that same thing. It depends how you define notes, because eh? if notes are words, then it's not the notes, because everyone can use the words. Everyone mm -hmm. can just go like this. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, right. It's, it is the emotion. Usually, when, like when I pick up a book, uh, the first thing, uh, you know, I. Like the first paragraph for me, if, if a writer is good, the first paragraph, usually the first sentence or two sentences, but the first paragraph has the emotion, the main emotion of the book. It has to have it. All good books have that. And it also represents a main theme of the book. And even on a very subconscious level, on a very, like it's back, 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 back behind it because I'm a writer, I can, I can sense it. Uh, and people also sense it. When, when people read, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Chuck Palahniuk. Yes. Uh, so if people read his stuff, you connect to it on a gut level from the first uh, uh, word, from the first sentence or the first paragraph. Some yeah. people will not connect to it. If you read, like I'm taking extreme examples, J.D. Salinger uh, in Catching the Eye, you pick up on it in the first paragraph and either you identify with it or you don't. Yeah. Um, you can basically do that to everything. 
the best, um, what is it? The, what's the noir, I forgot his name. The, the guy who wrote a lot of noir, uh, Philip Marlowe. Uh, yeah. Oh, um... I think Philip Marlowe. Oh my God, it's right there. And I just yeah. watched one of those Marlowe movies. Um... Raymond Chandler. So Chandler. The, first time, <laughs> the first time I picked up uh, a Raymond Chandler novel, like the, the, the attention to detail was all about uh, like it was clear that this guy had a real, real attention to detail, and it, it's not an OCD kind of attention to detail. It's something that is important to him, and that's what the novels are about. Some, mm -hmm. you know, they're also about other things. Yeah. Um, you can do that to to, to basically uh, everything. Yeah, all the good novels you ever, all the comic books, all yeah. the movies, you know, anything you've ever seen. That's a great walk. You connect to it emotionally, even if you don't see the emotion, even if right. it's not clear, even if it's hidden. Right. It's interesting. I there was something you said that just made me think about this. Where yeah, not everyone is always going to respond, but some will. I think. I think that's another thing that I've. I've come to almost appreciate more as I've gotten older is this idea that trying to make something that most people will like is not only not possible, it's maybe not even desirable. Because if you're looking for real resonance with someone, it's going to have to be specific enough to really, to really hit home. And therefore, will maybe alienate other people. Uh, I think it was I saw once Steven Soderbergh uh, was he was being he was doing an interview about his movies, and it was talking about commercial failures and things like that. And he uh, he was talking about how the rise in his mind the rise of Rotten Tomatoes had sort of ruined the ability to do great art in cinema <laughs> because it's all about what score did you get you know on the rotten tomatoes thing like what percent and that this i and this implication that the higher it is the better your movie is and if it's low if you got like a 58 percent or 47 percent or something like that your movie's not very good and he's like can you imagine what 2001 would have gotten if it had come out in the Rotten Tomatoes era, you know, I mean, you can think of a lot of movies that we've we've decided that polarizing is bad. When you could make the argument that anything interesting is probably going to be polarizing, but that's maybe a characteristic of interesting work. I find, you know, some I, sometimes you have to read the subtext to find sense. Yeah. Even Soderbergh is the guy who did Sex, Lies, and Videotape, right? Right. Beginning. Right. That is one of the low budget, like, I don't know how much it costs, but it's basically people talking. There's like three of them, four of them, I don't remember. It could have been a play. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it is, it is so low budget. It was such a huge success. Mm -hmm. He has such a good name to his name. You know, his name is worth something. He could easily get a million or two, a million and a half, which is nothing for uh, a movie, and do another one like that. Right. So what's actually bothering him? Because the thing is complex, and it would, because it's him, and he would probably pick good actors who would really be happy to work with him and get paid less, uh, so you get famous actors too, he could yeah. make something that's easily, uh, I will show you. Uh, he can easily make something that is, you know, will put in 300% of what, you know, it actually cost. So, right. Which is, again, not a lot, you know, four and a half million, say, for. Uh, right. So he could do anything he wanted if he really wanted to be artistic. He could do anything artistic he wanted. So that's not the thing that bothers him. He right. somehow got it into his mind. And enough people have told him, and it, it touched on something inside him 
that, uh, you know, he is bugged by the fact that he can't do something, you know, for 50, you know, that costs $50 million and uh, it is still his kind of artistic thing. Right. Um, you know, but... <laughs> it's true. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, uh, what I heard before and uh, what you said is your approach is you're thinking about how people would accept it. I'll tell you what my thing is, okay? Because I have in the in the online encyclopedia of uh, science fiction and fantasy, I'm re- my entry actually says he does his own thing, no matter what. That's <laughs> basically kind of what it says about me. And um, I, my thing has always been, I've always felt uh, different, and I want, and that the the subtlety of the small emotions I feel are not, I'm not able to, uh, you know, being, I, I can't explain them to you properly. So people don't get, people don't get them basically. So my stories are always trying to get you to feel like me. So I make stories about the feelings I have or, you know, whatever right. situations or whatever, which are completely fantastic or, you know, science fiction-y. And, uh, um, and that works really well. I take into account, like I start, it sounds like something relatively normal. Like it takes in regular people. I use the fact that it's a story to force you to move on to the next page. I also do a trick where the only way you're going to move to the next page is if you care about the thing that I care about. If you don't care about the thing, you're going to stop there. But if you do, you go, and then I bring you, I get you to feel that thing. And it's never about how many people like it or how many people will, no. uh, um, you know, will read it and enjoy it. It's it's about the fact it has to be a good story. It has to mm-hmm. get you emotionally to that place. And then if you tell me I read this from beginning to end, I know you got me. It's like, uh, it's like, in another way, uh, when I, I I did comedies for the theater. And my specific kind of comedy is you only laugh if you get where I'm at. You wouldn't laugh if you uh, didn't, if you didn't get where I'm at. Like, it's not just, it's not just funny. It's so if you laugh and you can't fake not laugh, you like, you can't fake laugh. So if you get it, uh, you, you get it. And it makes sure that people understood where I am. So for you, I, this is something I think about a lot because the, my comic series is ba- is sci-fi. Um, why do you feel, I, I, I hate to turn the tables here, but why have you opted to uh, wrap your emotional experience in genre as, to pose, as opposed to, you know, writing autobiographical things? So I'll... I'll answer, and then you answer the same question. Okay. So, yes. Um, in prose, I usually do science fiction, fantasy. In when I did plays, I did completely realistic stuff, all crazy comedies. But I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a friend who, like my best friend, basically was going to kill herself at some okay. point because the guy she was in love with probably didn't love her, and you know. If it didn't answer today to this thing, she would kill herself. There's nothing I could do to, to stop her. I'm doing that, he did do it. She didn't kill herself. Everything's good. But in her talking about killing herself, which was not the first time she, she tried, um, there was an element of, you know, I'll kill myself and then they'll get it. They'll get that they did this to me. They'll finally understand. After a lifetime of people not understanding, whatever it is she's right. going to do. Right, you can't deny that. Like you had, that makes you think about it. Yeah. yeah. So, well, ah, no, that's the question. So I wrote a story exactly about that. It's about okay. a telepath. So I wanted to check what would happen. I'll get to how it connects. A telepath, basically coming out, a teenage telepath, 19 years old, coming to a kind of school for telepaths. Uh, where they teach like there's only a handful of people, they teach the special talent. And only if you touch someone, you can feel the emotions as they're feeling it. It's not like Professor X. 
And uh, so in that, like medical school, you have people who donate their bodies to science. Some people donate their bodies to this. And, you know, everyone has the week taking care of the morgue and she's the first one. And then a buddy comes in and she doesn't know what to do. And it's like an, an, a girl her age who killed herself. And basically it turns out that like in the first week, you can, you can touch a dead person, a freshly dead person, and think for them through the pathways that exist. And she becomes obsessive about her past and sinks into her past. And this is a girl who killed herself for similar reasons to make her, you know, the boyfriend understand that he shouldn't have left her and the parents to understand that they didn't understand them. And the live girl is so, gets so confused about the difference between herself. She identifies too much with the dead girl. And she does something she's not supposed to do. Feeling, she, she goes back to the dead girl's family who is in mourning because the woman, she just died, feeling that she represents the dead girl because she wants to see if there's a change. And there is no change. If they didn't get it in life, they didn't get it in death. Not the father, not the, the, not the mother, not the, uh, the boyfriend. So I use telepathy to check what would happen after you die. Right. That's how. That's why I'd make that as uh, science fiction. I got to explore something I wouldn't be able to. I kind of love do. that. I love. I love that. Like the the the. It's a little disappointing, but it also it just feels very authentic. You know, it feels very plausible that that's you know what she would experience. Yeah. And on the way, she explores herself and finds stuff about herself and about the school and there's other stuff. It's, uh, yeah. It's called the perfect girl. So now you. Okay. Um, well, you know, there, there's an expression I, I encountered recently that I think made helped me think about this. Um, I, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola. He talked something about the protective layer of genre. This idea of like, you know, you could tell like a very honest, straight autobiographical story, or you can uh, use the protective layer of genre. And of course, to me, there's something, I don't know if he meant it this way, but to my ear, there's sort of an implied derisiveness to it. Like you're not, you're being a little timid, you know, to put it kindly. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, the way I see it, I, I would change that phrase, protective layer of genre, as the camouflage of genre. <laughs> I think frank autobiographical writing can be rejected more easily by an audience, almost like a virus in the body. Like there's just an, in, a reflexive like there's all sorts of weird superficial reasons and biases to say like i'm not interested in your story um but if you can wrap it in something like genre if you can do like what i think malcolm gladwell said like you know he tries to present in his stories sweet with a meal there's some kind of sweet that gets you into it and that's what you'll maybe tell people about later but there's a meal once you're consuming it you're actually getting some nourishment there's some content there there's meat on the bone mm -hmm. i think that's the attraction for me personally of genre that you can tell more interesting stories more nuanced stories more personal stories stories that might be a little complicated to pitch when enveloped in this idea of interstellar war or you know whatever the thing is like you're giving someone an easy entrance and then once they're there and enjoying the trappings of that you can slip in some medicine with the sweets uh, yeah, that's kind of my thought but that's, that's the essence of, of finding a story i think um, well and i i per oh i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead i think and you know and i'm assuming you agree I uh, I feel like I'm doing way too much quoting. I don't know why they're bubbling up, but I heard once someone say that almost any story can be told as a Western. I would say that for sci-fi. Almost any story could be told as sci-fi. Almost any thought you want to express or some, you know, philosophical or emotional or anything you want to really explore, sci-fi is a pretty wide, lush 
stage to try and tell those stories and really explore them. I mean, I, I think that's the basic appeal of things like Star Trek and Star Wars. You know, you can explore a lot of very nuancy, niche human experience, emotions and things. Yeah, you, yeah, but you're right that like in Star Trek, you know, the experience is not the same. In Star Trek, you can, you, the fact that it is away from me, uh, it helps me explore something which is hard, like the ones they had about, you know, the black hair, white hair. Um, right. And we have people, I think, I'll quote something back to you. Asimov in one of his autobiographies talks about Star Trek. And he says the re- he thinks one of the reasons it was popular, the people responded to it at the time and it grew, is that it presented, yeah, you know, it, times were bleak. You had the Vietnam War, you had, uh, uh, you know, the president dying, you had Martin Luther King dying, you had Robert Kennedy dying, a uh, killed, killed, not dying. And, um, and you had uh, Watergate a few years later, and um, things were bleak. And that kind of thing said, we're going to end up fine. We're going to be fine. You know, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, I forgot her name. Oh, Nisha Nichols talked about she didn't want to play a role because it was a small role, and people said, "No, you like just the fact people from her, uh, people she knew, just the fact that she's black on a show uh, helped make them feel better." You know, today obviously you know right. more than that, but uh, it was the beginning. Um, I would say something about uh, what you said before about the, you know talking like masking yourself in science fiction in the genre. You're an '80s kid, so do you remember Soap? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can you... still hear the opening theme like in my head. If just you saying that, uh huh. Confused? You won't be after this episode of Soap. So, <laughs> it, it is one of the truly funniest, funniest, most original shows ever, and. Uh, there's a bit like some of the beginning, first episodes of the first season. There's this guy who's, uh, you know, he's got a dummy, uh, talks to his dummy, and the dummy's like yes. a character, uh, Chuck and Bob. And there's one thing they hide his dummy because he can't speak without his dummy in the kitchen. And in the kitchen. So he takes a grapefruit and opens it just to talk, to be able to talk. So they take the grapefruit and he finds the banana and he talks to the banana. <laughs> and he takes the. It is amazing. And sometimes I feel like that. I can't write yes. an autobiographical story. I can only write stories, fiction right. stories about my life. Right. Let's continue the quoting train. I was listening to uh, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen's podcast, the one they're doing now. They're doing a podcast together? They did it. Yeah. I think it's maybe done now. And it's oh. it's really good. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, okay very in-depth they talk about all sorts of things it's very wide-ranging but uh obama at one point he talks about meeting springsteen and talks about how he was a little surprised that he's kind of a shy guy uh, which he wouldn't have expected big rock star and springsteen i actually wrote it down because i was so struck by it it was one of those things where you're listening to a podcast and you're like wait replay that i want to listen to that one more time he said this was Bruce Springsteen on shyness among creatives. Shyness is not unusual. If you weren't quiet, you wouldn't have so desperately searched for a way to speak. That was his thought. And, and I thought that was just not only remarkably insightful, insightful, but applied to almost every and any creative I know. You know, there, I think that, and I think that's with the soap ventriloquist. There's this like, this is how I communicate. This is how I express myself to people. I find it very difficult to do it without this device. Like I need, you know, and I, I find that to be, I am very introverted and I do find social engagements very exhausting. And, uh, but expressing myself creatively is, I the way I, it makes me feel is almost how I imagine extroverts feel doing normal socializing. You know, they feel recharged, they feel appreciated, they feel seen, they feel, you know, like they, like it's it's a very positive, warming, nourishing experience for them. Me going to a cocktail party is not that. 
but me giving some kind of fever dream funhouse mirror version of my life experiences in a sci-fi comic and putting that out there and somebody reading it and saying they loved it that that's where i get that so i tell you that for the first like i, I am an introvert and i am shy and uh, uh in um and of course i was mad this is this is good it used to be terrible and um and you're doing very good too and uh, um like for the first like until like 10 years ago or something it, it was pretty horrible and uh the thing is also it wasn't in a relationship uh, so I, I was by myself most of the time and i had my own echo chamber so things bounced off the wall and then bounced off the things that bounced and bounced off the things that bounced bounce of the things it bounced and then i found the really amazing stories like you i needed quite so big to find thoughts about thoughts about thoughts about that because i i most of my stories are about uh how we think uh in one way or another because mm -hmm. my, my telepaths for example and uh and so i needed that quiet like put me for half an hour by myself um, without thinking about you know stuff I'm worried about, and a crazy idea will come out of me because I will something will happen in time, and then I'll, I'll touch a truth so big that it comes out as a story. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that. Oh, go ahead. No, good. I I also want to say it's not true that most the artists are shy. Like there are even writers who are extroverts and who write through being extroverts. It's actually, you know, I haven't seen a lot of them, but there's a few. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you've got actors who are extroverts, you've got dancers, you know, different right. types of arts right. completely outside. Writing you do alone in your house. Sure. Um, I've come to appreciate that shyness is sort of a complicated and, and, and loaded term too, you know, and because it can, it, I think it encapsulates a lot of different behaviors. Um, I think... Sometimes it can just mean being introverted, which isn't necessarily shy. Like those aren't necessarily the same thing. I think sometimes it can mean struggling or being uncomfortable with connecting to other people in a personal way. I think sometimes it can mean being uncomfortable around strangers. I find, I don't even know how I would really define myself if I wanted to get into the weeds. I think I'm probably more comfortable with strangers than people I really care about and I'm close to. <laughs> I think there's something about as stakes raise in a relationship, I get more uncomfortable, you know? So like, like I can do great in a job interview and I can do great like public speaking to an audience. But if I actually have to sit and really emotionally relate to someone I've known for 20 years, that's what's difficult, you know? Maybe because then you have more to lose. Right. I think that's make them, yeah. right. Stakes, like the stakes, yeah. Just, yeah, that's what it's all about. And with a stranger, like you can be very, open and loose and who cares right but let's talk about your project okay we haven't gotten to so let's let's make sure we get to that <laughs> so what are so, you working on excuse me so what are you working on i'm working <laughs> on uh the third installment of my sci-fi horror anthology indie comic uh d versus m uh, which is just shorthand for dinosaurs versus mars bots it has a very pulpy campy name uh, but it's a little bit of a misdirect. It's a little subversive. The stories are definitely aimed at mature readers. That's not code. Normally when you say mature readers, you think like, oh, you mean like there's a lot of sex? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's heady. It's more adult oriented writing. Um, it's very character heavy. The premise is there is a top secret war, uh, an alien invasion type situation that was taking place between the mid seventies and the early two thousands. And D versus M is sort of a multi-generational uh, anthology series where each episode, each issue of it, focuses on a different POV character, their experience of this from their particular position. So the first one is very focused on a couple of men in black. Uh, the second one is very focused on an innocent bystander, just an eyewitness who was in the wrong place at the right time. And the one I'm working on now is about a scientist working in a top secret facility, working on solutions to the 
the the the war is going badly for the humans and she's one of a team trying to come up with the answer to uh the alien threat uh i have three more planned after this it's going to be six total uh in I'm really enjoying it. I did that first one when I was still fresh off my what <laughs> was almost uh, an almost near death experience, but not really. Uh, I didn't even know if I'd even show it to anybody. People don't believe me when I say this, but I did the comic. I finished it and I did briefly consider just throwing it in a drawer and saying, like, I proved it to myself. I can follow through on a creative project like that was really what it was about. Mm-hmm. But I did put it out there and it got some attention and and people seem to like it so i went ahead and did another and that one seemed to be even better received so it's like okay well we'll just keep doing this and and now i'm at the point where about halfway through this project it feels like a foregone conclusion that i will finish like i'm thinking ahead about and i'm making notes all the time about what the last three will involve and i have like as you start nearing that finish line it's all becoming kind of clear to me what this will be and it would be difficult to imagine not finishing it so so but i i think you're you you're not describing your your story for like um okay. There's an element of uh, like it seems like it, it claims to be conspiratorial, like it, it talks about yes. conspiracy that everything in it is actually the truth. Yes, and it looks very like an old style kind of uh, campy stuff. Yes, so uh, yeah, the whole framing is that um, I, Gary Hodges have been leaked top secret files uh, about this highly classified dinosaur Martian war, this thing that took place, like I said, in the past few decades. And I've decided to disseminate this top secret material in the form of comic books. But when you read the comics, you see it always opens with what appears to be leaked classified documents with the redactions, and it's all played very straight. It's all like this happened in this place. This was all 100% true as it was told to me. Completely straight. Yeah. It looks like, wait, is, is he being like, it's dinosaurs versus uh, uh, so, 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 is he like, does he really believe it? Or is he like playing a joke uh, on the thing? Like, there is like a little bit of, uh, because it is so straight. It's very straight, yeah. very straight, uh, which I felt. So, when, when this whole property started, before I did the comic, before the, you know, the, moment of clarity where I realized like I need to start finishing creative projects. I had been toying with this dinosaurs versus Mars bots ideas idea and I had been going to comic cons and selling prints. I was just doing prints of like a particular dinosaur fighting an alien or whatever, you know, like you'd show like a tyrannosaur chewing up a Martian robot, you know, and it was just like a comic con thing. I'll sell this. And I had a coloring book that it was the same thing. It was the prints, but black and white. But you'd have on one page, like the black and white cartoony drawing of a dinosaur and a Martian war machine fighting. And on the other side, you would have this text that was very straight. And I always used to compare it to people. It's like, it's like if Ken Burns did a War of the Worlds documentary, like it's very straight, like this is, you know, tales from the front lines. So when it came time to like, I'm going to do the comic, it's like, well, that's basically what it's going to be. I'm going to play it completely straight. And the human characters in the comic are the least fantastic thing about anything in the story. I wanted them all to be very believable and their reactions to be very human and understandable. I wanted the human characters to be what kept you there. I didn't believe I could do a comic series that was just pure campy pulp. I didn't want to do Mars Attacks. I didn't want to do because I just don't know how you do years and years of work on that. Like you can only watch a robot get blown up so many times like what you know, I need more. So I thought, well, my angle is going to be I'm going to I'm going to see if I can pull this off. It's a little bit of a called shot. I'm going to see if I can actually give this campy framing some real human relatability and some emotional resonance by focusing on these POV characters, by focusing on what it would be like to experience some of this craziness if you were, if this really happened. And it seems to be, I wasn't sure if it would work, but I was 
while I was working on it, I was emboldened by the fact that World War Z came out, the book, not the movie. I found the movie to be pretty bad, but the book I thought was amazing. And the book has a very similar um, approach. It's like, okay, zombie apocalypse, very ridiculous, but let's treat it like, well, how would that actually play out? How would that really happen? And we'll, and the, the book is just a series of interviews with soldiers and prime ministers and scientists talking about the zombie apocalypse. And I, I, that made me realize like, okay, this is possible. You can do this. You can take a ridiculous premise and treat it very seriously and end up with something very interesting uh, artistically. So that's what I'm doing with mine. Cool. And if anyone ever asks you, like, is this thing really about you and this specific thing and you feel it's too much, you can always say, you know, it's a story. It's just a story. I, or I can just say, you know what, that's classified. It's classified. Oh, classified, I better. I, yeah. I wish I could tell you, but it's classified. Great. And uh, um, so what, how do you see the future? Like what's next? Well, right now I'm just about to start. I've written and I've planned and I'm just about to start drawing the third comic. Um, this will probably be the carousel I'm on for the next few years is right. Drawing a comic, releasing a comic, drawing the next, you know, like just on and on and on. I do everything on my, I'm a one man shop. I come up with the idea. I write the script. I turn it into a comic form, I draw it and I really, you know, it's, there's, I don't have anybody else. Um, the question is what do I want to do when I'm done with that. And I think I'm finally ready to go back to that fantasy novel. And I think conveniently I've matured as a creative and aged into the right point where I can do it more justice than when I first came up with it in high school and college. So right now, my thought is I would probably go back to the novel. Um, but I have a couple of screenplay ideas that maybe I would try to crank out before I did that. You know, just get them out there and see if anybody's interested in them, then work on the novel. But I might, that would probably conclude my comic career though. I think I wanted to tell this comic story and then I'll, I'll feel good. I feel like I accept exercised that demon so cool and where can people find you uh the easiest place is probably on instagram it's dinosaurs versus mars bots dinosaurs vs mars bots uh that has a like a link tree there where you can find all my other spots mm -hmm. what i'm really trying to encourage people to check out right now is my youtube which is just under my name gary hodges you'll know it's me because the profile picture is a cartoony tyrannosaur eating an alien. Uh, I have lots of videos up there. I go in, in depth in the process of making my comics. Uh, right now, there's a new video about once a week. And I have some real, uh, real rookie numbers on subscribers. I have something like 96 subscribers or something, which for all the videos that I put up and for as long as I've been putting up videos, it's sad. So I'm trying to push people like, do me a favor. Doesn't cost you anything. Subscribe to my YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, hit the thing for alerts. Watch some videos. Like some videos. It really it would help me because if at, it, as everyone knows the algorithm, the way it works, nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. You get more followers. You get more likes. You end up with more followers and more likes. And right now I'm at that kind of I haven't hit that tipping point yet. So nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. That's a good quote. That, that's it's, it's not bad, right? You in a few years, yeah. <laughs> I've arrived. That's it. There we go. That was all actually what it was about is I want to be quoted someday. Yeah. And I, I hope you're not too modest to trim this, but I really appreciate your podcast and enjoy it. Oh. I think it's very valuable. I like that you really get into the deep kind of process and getting to know the creative in this. And it's not just the superficial, superficial pitch your comic and now let's talk about marvel's what if you know like i like that it's a legit interview with creatives and you do a good job thank you i appreciate that you're welcome
Here's the part I will cut out. You did a great job also. Told a great story. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm going to tell that when I introduce you. So. Thank you very much. That was a really fascinating interview for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. In the show notes, you'll find uh, the links to guys' YouTube and Instagram. And now we are at episode 48. So I usually don't tease much ahead of time. But uh, in two episodes, episode 50, we'll have a very, 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 very special guest whose name I will not say is the king of the indie animation. And his name is Bill Plimpton, but I won't say his name. And that's in two episodes, totally worth it. He does get highlighted, but he has so much advice for indie uh, newcomers that uh, you should listen. And it's also a pleasure to talk to. So I'm letting you know in advance, so you know how to, so, so I'm letting you know in advance, so you know to look out for it. And next episode, right before Bill Plimpton, we are going to tackle Latina superheroines. So stick around for that. Now, what did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson, that's H-A-S-S-O-N, at geekdomimpowers.com. The website is geekdomimpowers.com on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're at geekdomimpowers also. Finally, the YouTube is up. So I'm uploading the episodes as fast as I can, one or two or three or four a day. Uh, so check out all these interviews on our YouTube, geekdomimpowers. If you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, it is an experiment in epic fantasy. Feel free to check it out. The Squash Buckler Diaries. As I told Gary, I'm, <laughs> I'm known as the guy who does his own thing, no matter what anyone says. Uh, anyway, feel free to check it out, The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.